chapter 13, and we're going to be in verses 47 through 50. Matthew chapter 13, and verses 47 through 50. For those of you that were here last Sunday for Pastor Henry's uh, sermon, uh, he mentioned that sometimes Scripture is like bad medicine. Everybody remember him saying that? that um, and today is some more bad medicine. Um, there just ain't no way around it. It's, it doesn't taste good, it doesn't look good, it doesn't sound good, but we have to trust because they're the words of Jesus that it's good for us. Does that make sense? I mean, this is Jesus himself doing the talking, and, and uh, he, he, over and over again, he says, assuredly, I tell you the truth. Assuredly, I tell you the truth. So we trust him, right, that it may not sound good, may not taste good, may not look good, may not, any of that to our senses may not sound that great, but because it's him, we, we trust him. Now, I don't know about y'all, but Matthew 13 has turned out to just be an incredible chapter for me. You know, I had heard, I had always, all my life, I've, I've known these parables, I've read these parables and heard these parables, but I have never seen how they go together until this study. And, and I hope that's been the same thing for you. If you go back up, and we won't do it this morning, but if you go to the top of Matthew 13 and you start reading, you'll find out that Jesus is telling us all about the kingdom. And he starts out in verses 1 through 30, and he's explaining the nature of the kingdom. And he does that in the parable of the souls and the parables of the weeds. And what he's telling us is that unbelievers and believers, the good and the evil, will all have to dwell together. And in the parable of the weeds, he says, just leave them alone until the end of time. He's not going to do anything about that until the end. Then he, in verses 31 through 33, in the mustard seed and the leaven, he talks about the power of the kingdom, how the kingdom's going to start small and grow large, and it's going to be like leaven hidden in a batch of dough. It's going to be powerful. And then in uh, parable in verses 44 to 46, he talks about the appropriation of the kingdom and the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. In other words, how do you make this, this parable, uh, this, uh, this kingdom, your, your own? Now remember, in these parables... The Lord is talking about the king, how the kingdom of God is going to be from between the time that he went back to heaven and the time he comes again. Everybody with me? It's this interim period uh, before Jesus' return. It's this the last days of, of the world's history. And he's allowing during this time that we live in right now, the good and the evil. No. You would... You would see some evil there. Okay. So we're going to allow the good and the evil to grow together. But there's coming a separation. Okay? That's what today's parable is all about. There's, there's going to be a period of time where the good and evil go together, the believer and the unbeliever. We, we said it before. We're going to shop together and play ball together and, and, and attend church together. All these things. But one day, there's coming a separation. There will come a judgment and God will eternally separate the good from the bad. So let's look at verses 47 through 48, and we'll begin there. Jesus says again, now again, he's been telling us these parables, so he says, I got another one for you. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore, and they sat down and they gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. Now, I don't know if you... I looked up some statistics. In the one hour 
that it takes us this morning to finish our class, 6,000 people on this earth will die. Between now and tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., when we get up and go to our jobs and our daily work, over 150,000 more people will have entered eternity. From January 1st of this year to December 31st of 2017, over 55 million people will go into eternity. You see, this is what we're talking about this morning is reality. It's not just some story from, from some preacher that, that walked the earth 2,000 years ago. This is, this is reality. Every human life, you, me, everybody, we're all imperceptibly sometimes, it just sees, we're just walking down toward that inevitable hour, that inevitable second when we take our, our last breath. So this parable that we're talking about this morning is a severe, severe warning from the Lord. And He's telling us all, you better be ready because this is coming. This is a parable that we should all heed very carefully. Now, as we've said numerous times, parables always relate stories from, from common life. We, most of our parables we've seen so far in our study has been about farming. Last week in the parable of the leaven, we saw it about cooking or, or baking. Today's parable is all about fishing. Um, now, fishing in that day and time was a very common thing for the, uh, in, in the land of Palestine. Uh, not only it was a way for families, uh, you know, most of the people were farmers. They grew gardens of some size. But you're, you're you know, you, just like here in Walcala County, I, I remember uh, talking to some older people, and they would farm when it was good for farming, and when farming, when it was wintertime, they'd go do what? They'd go mullet fishing. I mean, you, you caught fish and you, you put it in barrels on salt because you, it supplemented your diet. You weren't always going to have meat. You weren't always going to have vegetables. The same thing was true back then. They, they supplemented their diets by fishing. Some people, like Peter, for example, Peter and Andrew, uh, they made their living. That's what they were. They were fishermen, and, and probably James and John as well. So, you know, again, it could be something you just did on the side to supplement your diet, or it could be something you did for a living. Now, in that day, there were basically three ways that they fished. Um, if you go to Palestine today, they're still using those same three ways. By the way, if you go to Dickerson Bay, they're still using those same three ways. So nothing in 2,000 years, we still fish pretty much the way we did 2,000 years ago. First of all, they fished with a hook and line. Remember in Matthew 17, 27, the Pharisees were giving Jesus' disciples a hard time about whether or not they paid the temple tax. And in Matthew 17, Jesus tells Peter, he says, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel, take that and give it to them for, for you and myself. So they actually would fish with a, with a hook and line, just like we do today. Another way that they fished was with a cast net. Um, in Matthew 4.18, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Peter and Andrew, casting a net. Now the Greek word there where it says casting a net is amphibolstron. And it, it literally means a cast net. I don't know if how good y'all can see that, but it, it was a cast net then, just like it is a cast net today. Obviously, it probably wasn't made out of nylon. It was made out of, uh, of, of some other kind of material. But it worked exactly then the way it works today. Um, so if, you're a, if you throw a cast net, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're in good stead. You're throwing nets just like Peter and Andrew. But that is not the net that is being talked about in today's parable. This parable uses a completely different Greek term. Look at verse 47. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, 
And the word that Jesus uses there is sagini. It's a Greek word. It's sagini. It's not amphibolstron like a cast net. This is a different kind of net that the English we translate into a, a drag net. We would refer to this probably as a seine net or a gill net. Everybody with me? I don't know how many. How many of y'all here have used a seine net before? A few of you uh, or, or gone gill net fishing. It's different than a cast net. It's, uh, it's what we'd refer to as a seine net or a, a gill net. Now, in that day, uh, those nets could be very small where they could be worked by two men or they could be very large. I found one commentator that said there were nets. They would build nets up to about a half a mile long and load them up on their, uh, their boat. So these, these big nets were so large that they couldn't work them by hand. They had to ha- actually work them with the aid of a boat. So what they would do is they would get out in an area, they would drop the anchor on one end of the net, and then the boat would slowly start to make these big, ever-increasing circles. Everybody with me? And that, letting the net off. Again, just a, a lot like we do uh, here in Wonkala County. And then anything that gets caught or, or captured in the confines of the net would eventually be uh, captured as they, as they drug it in. Now, I think it's pretty clear why the Lord uses a drag net instead of a cast net for this parable. First of all, because of the size. You know, a cast net is probably going to be 8 or 10 feet. You know, it's not going to be that big. Whereas these, these, these subginis or these drag nets could be very, very large. But the other reason that he uses is, is the fact that a dragnet brings in everything. I don't know how many of y'all, again, I asked the question, have ever used a seine net? But if you ever seine net a creek or you seine net, you go down to Mud Cove and you're looking for shrimp and you want to try to use a seine net, you literally get everything. I mean, you drag in a seine net, you might get some shrimp, you might, you might get some shells, you're going to get some crabs, you're going to get pinfish, you're going to get just about anything in the way it's going, to be, it's going to come in. Seaweed, the whole nine yards. So once you get it to shore, you've got a lot of work to do. And that's what Jesus says in verse 48. Look at that. He says, when it was full, they drew it to shore and they sat down and they gathered the good into vessels and they threw the bad away. Now, if you, again, if you've ever used a saying net, you might as well sit down, right? Because you've got so much junk in that net that you literally just turn over a bucket, you sit down, and you start going through it. And you, and you take out the crabs and the pinfish and all that, and you throw them away, and you take the shrimp or whatever it is you're trying to get, and you put it into your, your cooler, and you move on. So this scene would be very common, uh, very practical to the people who are listening, especially the disciples who were fishermen. They would understand this very, very well. And the picture that Jesus is painting is very clear. It was clear for them today. And by the way, it should be, be very clear for, for us here in Walcola County. We, we've grown up, most of us, around a fishing community. We understand what it means to use seine nets and, and, and gill nets. We get this. So this should be a very, very clear picture for you and I. Now here is Jesus' interpretation of what he just said. Look at verse 49 through 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and they will separate the wicked from among the just and they will cast them, talking about the wicked, into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, just looking at this parable, there's a whole lot that we could say about it. If you just start thinking about the imagery of the net and how it 
gets closer and closer to the fish as it's drawing them towards shore. There's all kind of possibilities that, that you could run with in that imagery. For example, think about Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. And a, and a gill net or a, a, a seine net is made usually of monofilament or nylon where you can't see it in the water. That's the whole point, that the fish can't see it. And so it's very just almost invisibly moving through the sea and, it, and it's mesh that the fish can't see it. But from time to time, that mesh will bump up against a mullet or that, it will bump up against a fish, the back of a fish. And when it does, that fish simply just darts ahead, right? It just kind of moves away from the net and it thinks, well, I'm free. That didn't catch me. Everybody with me? You know, it, it says, oh, that was close, but I'm, it didn't catch me. And so it just moves away from the net and it continues to enjoy the freedom that it thinks is his permanently. It thinks, man, I've escaped. This is going to be a permanent way. But it doesn't realize that net is just getting closer and closer and closer. Now, just think about that for a second. Isn't this exactly how it is with human beings in this world? Men and women live in this world and they're going about their daily lives and they're fulfilling their own desires. They're, they're, they're living with their own purposes. They're doing their own thing. And from time to time, they will brush up against the kingdom of God. Maybe it's because they go to church once a year on, on Easter Sunday. Maybe it's a co-worker who, who witnesses to them at work. Maybe they're riding down the road and they hear a song and the Lord uses that song to, to say, you need to, you need to come to me, you need to repent. In some way or some form or fashion, they brush up against the kingdom of God, but then they just dart away. They just move away. They don't let it sink in. They don't take it seriously. They don't, they don't let it do a work in their heart. And they just move away from it, and they think, I'm free. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm living my life, and, and all the stuff that I'm doing, there's never going to be any consequences. And all the while, the invisible mesh of the kingdom is moving closer and closer and closer and closer. I wrote this down. Little by little, little by little, imperceptibly and silently, the dragnet of the kingdom moves through the sea of time, drawing all men to the shore of eternity. And by the time you get up against the shore and you figure out what's going on, it's too late. It's over. Like for that mullet. You ever use a seine net and you get a mullet up to the shore and as long as he's got a little bit of water, he's swimming. But when that net touches him in the shore, he goes crazy. He's flipping and flopping and gnashing and wailing, and, but it's too late. At that point, there, there, there's nothing for, for him to do. See, like I said, there are a lot of places we could go with this type of imagery, but here's the thing. I want you to notice in your verses that Jesus doesn't go any of those places. When he interprets this parable, he's only in, interested in one part of the story. He only interprets one thing. There's only one spiritual lesson that he takes out of that parable, and that is this, the act of separating the bad from the good and disposing of the bad. Did you notice in your parable, he doesn't even say what happens to the good, does he? That's not, even, that's not his focus in this parable. He just says the good are put into vessels. But he says the bad, he tells exactly what happens to the bad. They are cast into a furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's all he focuses on. He lets everything else in the story 
pass without comment. So the rest, for the rest of the time that we have this morning, we're going to do exactly the same thing that Jesus did. We're only going to focus on what Jesus meant this parable to teach, and that is the gathering of men for judgment. You see, all along, and we've been saying this for several weeks now, we've been saying it over and over and over and over. In this kingdom that we live in, we've been learning it that the good and the evil dwell together. And, and sometimes we, we all feel this, right? You go out in life, and, and if you're like me, I try to keep up with the news, and I'm always reading the news to see what's going on, and it'll just depress you. It just seems like evil is winning. It's just overtaking the culture. They're, they're out there calling evil good and good evil. Are they not? It's insane. Um, there's an old saying, the, the inmates have taken over the asylum. Well, that's exactly what it seems like sometimes. The inmates have taken, they're running the asylum. And it seems like, man, we, I don't know if we can win this thing. I don't know. But see, all of these parables are teaching the exact opposite. Look, Jesus is saying this is exactly, I told you from the beginning, this is exactly how I said it would be. The evil are going to coexist with the good. I'm going to leave it alone until the end. Don't worry about winning. You're going to start small. You're going to grow big. Leaven is more powerful than the dough. It's going to overcome the dough. Don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. He says it to us over and over and over again. And for those that are worried about whether, you know, the, the evil will get its comeuppance, whether the evil will get its judgment, he says, of course it will. There's coming a separation. There's coming a judgment. And, and on that day, I'll take care of it all. On that day, he's going to make a separation from those who love the king and those who don't love the king. Those who know the king as Savior and those who don't know the king, there will be a separation. And by the way, folks, that separation is inevitable, but it is also ultimate. There's no do-overs. There's no second chances. When that net comes up against the shore, it's done. It's done. It's over with, and it's happening. Now, I ask, I wanted to, I ask myself a question as I'm going through these parables, and I see how all these things kind of fit together the power of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, the appropriation of the kingdom, and, and now the summation of the kingdom. I asked myself, did you, you remember in the parable of the weeds? Everybody remember that a few weeks back? He actually talks about in the parable of the weeds the same separation. Remember they, the, 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 the people come to the master of the house and they say, hey, somebody has sowed, uh, sowed tares or sowed weeds in, among the wheat. Do you want us to go and take it out, pull it up? And he said, no. Just let them grow together because if you try to pull out the weeds, you'll pull out the good, the good wheat. So just let them grow together. At the end of the age, the angels are going to come and they'll separate the wheat from the tares. So he's already talked about this once in this chapter. So my question is, why? Why is he bringing it up again? Why is he focusing on it again? Well, I can only guess at a couple of reasons. First, I think he repeats it because in the parable of the weeds... The focus there was coexistence, was it not? He talked about the separation, but the focus there was on the coexistence of the good and the evil. The parable of the dragnet, the focus is one thing and one thing only, and that is the separation. It's coming, like a dragnet moving through the sea. It's slow, it's invisible, it's imperceptible, but it is coming, it's inevitable, and it's ultimate. I think he also repeats it because... Listen, God is just so merciful. Second Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow 
in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. And so he just gives them, it's almost like, it's almost like he's put a beacon on the net. You know, if we were fishing for fish, right, we want it to be invisible. We don't want them to see the net. It's almost like he's put a beacon on the, on the, on the net flashing. Hey, you dumb fish, you know, here we are. You know, he's shaking it. Look, here it is. Don't get caught in this net over and over and over and over again. See, the fact is, if you go back and read the Gospels, Jesus talks about hell a lot. And he's doing it because of that fact, because he's, not because he wants to scare you. You're not going to scare anybody into hell. It doesn't work that way. But he's doing it because he's so merciful and he doesn't want anybody to go there. So what does he do? He warns us again and again and again and again and again. Listen to some of these scriptures. By the way, this is all Jesus. This is not Paul. This is not Peter. This is not James. This is not Isaiah. These are all the words of Jesus. Matthew 25, 30. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Mark 9, 43 to 44. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Luke 16, 22 to 24. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Just look at some of these terms. By the way, all the words of Jesus, outer darkness, everlasting punishment, unquenchable fire, soul and body, anguish, torment. And of course, there's today's passage that we can add to that, Matthew 13, 50, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now listen, I don't know about y'all, but that is a scary verse. Let me read that again. This is today's parable, the words of Jesus. What happens to the unbeliever? What happens to the evil, the wicked one? He says they are cast into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing, wailing and gnashing of teeth. See, that, that to me, that's a scary verse. It, it, it's horrifying. It, it's fearful. I mean, I, I can't think of anything worse than that. And, and I'll be honest with you, I've said it before, I wish it was not in the Bible. I wish all those verses about hell were not in the Bible. And I think if you and I were honest, if there's one doctrine, if there's one teaching that you could reach into the Bible and take out, I think we would all wish that it was the teaching of hell. But listen, wishing doesn't change a thing. You can wish all day long and it changes absolutely nothing. It is there. See, today's passage contains, to me just some absolutely terrifying words about hell, but they come directly from the mouth of Jesus himself. And, and there's this funny thing about the Bible. If you go read the Bible, 
and you start finding the verses on hell, just go do a study sometime and find the verses on hell and count them up. And by the, when you count them down right by, the, right by each verse, who said it? And when you get done, you're going to come across this undeniable fact. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Scriptures. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Scriptures. Now, why? Why does he speak about it so much more? You think, you notice Paul mentions it from time to time, but he doesn't talk about it quite, not nearly the much as Jesus. Why does Jesus do it? Well, here's why I think. See, I think it had to be Jesus. See, this idea of eternal punishment, a punishment so bad, by the way, that it literally causes people to cry and scream and grind their teeth because of the pain. That's what gnashing of teeth means. It means you're in such pain. Remember the old cowboy movies when they're going to cut a bullet out? What do they do? Remember they give them something to chew on? Why? Because you, you literally will, will bite your tongue from the pain. So they give you something to bite down on. That's what Jesus is talking about. The pain is so bad that you grind your teeth. You, you literally would bite your tongue. Listen, that is repulsive to us, is it not? That is very difficult for you and I to put our arms around this idea of this punishment that goes on and on and on and on and, and never ends. In fact, it's so hard to believe and it's so repulsive that if anybody other than Jesus had said it, I don't think we would have believed it. Are you with me? You see, if Jesus had never talked about hell... But Paul did. I can, you know what people would have said? Well, see, Jesus didn't say anything about it. Can't be true. Are you with me? Jesus, but see, he did. And he did it again. And he did it again. Not just once, but more than anybody in the Bible. See, I think it had to be Jesus because it's so hard for us to conceive of. By the way, just eternity is hard for us to conceive of. We can conceive of a lifetime. Maybe we can even conceive of a thousand years or ten thousand years, but eternity is just very difficult for us to grasp. I think it had to be Jesus or we would have never been able to accept it. You see, when you go back, Jesus was a preacher of hell. The word preach means to proclaim. Jesus proclaimed hell more than anybody else in the Bible. And by the way, if we based our preaching on His example we should probably talk about hell more than we do. You see, we, we mention it, sure, right, from time to time. We, we'll mention it, but we don't focus on it. We don't, we don't preach a series on hell. We don't, teach, you know, we don't do whole sermons on hell. We prefer in our generation to focus on, you know, God loves you and God wants to forgive you. But Jesus balanced all of that out. And you see... The fact is, we may want to focus on the other stuff, but in this parable, Jesus is not going to let us do that. The focus of this parable is hell. It's not heaven. He doesn't even, once again, look at it. It doesn't even tell you what happens to the good. We know, but that's not the focus. The focus of this parable is what happens to the evil. The focus of this parable is about hell. So we have to look at it with our eyes wide open. So with a few minutes we've got left, Let's talk a little bit about what is hell. What is hell and what is it like? And we will do this by looking only at the words of Jesus. We won't look at commentaries. We won't look at the words of Peter or Paul or anybody else. We'll look only at the words of Jesus. Now, I'm just going to point out two things about hell. 
Number one, it is a place of torment and anguish. It is a place of horrible misery. In, in one place, Jesus called it outer darkness. Now, outer darkness, the idea, if you go look at the Greek term, it's like a black pit. It's like somebody's thrown you in a black pit and covered it. There is absolutely no light coming in at all. It is a darkness that's impenetrable. It's a darkness where there is no hope of light. You know, for those of you that have ever been in a what we call a long night, you ever been sick during the night or you ever been worried during the night and you stay up and you just want morning to come, right? You got this hope that, man, it's a few hours away, but it's coming. Imagine it's never coming. Imagine there is no light coming at all. The only knowledge that you'll have for all of eternity is that you'll, you'll never see light again. That's one way that our Lord describes hell. But at the same time, he describes it as a fire. In fact, in today's passage, he calls it a furnace of fire. Now, it may not be fire the way that we know fire because when we light a fire, we immediately get what? Light. So... The, I, I don't know what this fire is going to be like, but it, what we do know is it is like a fire that burns. It may not be a fire that produces light, but it is a fire that produces pain. There are only two times in all of Scripture where we are given any insight into how people will feel in hell. There's only two times. The first one we already read is the story of, rich man, of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember we saw it earlier. Let's read it again. This is found in Luke 16. Jesus tells a story of, of two men. There was a rich man, and in this life he had everything he wanted. He had all the clothes and the food and, and the best of everything, a big house. And there was a poor man that sat at his gate, and the Bible says even the dogs would lick his sores. He had nothing, nothing at all. And they died, and Lazarus goes to heaven... And the rich man goes to hell. And Jesus, this is, these are the words of Jesus. And again, remember, there are only two places where it says this is how people feel. It says the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he was in what? Torment. And he calls out to, to Abraham. He looks across and he sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. He says, Abraham, Father Abraham, just send him and just, he'll just tip, dip the tip of his finger in water. That's it. He, he's not asking for a... Ba- I mean, can you imagine being so tormented that you would think that if somebody would just have a drop of water on their finger, it would help you? And he goes on, he says that he'll cool my tongue for I am in anguish. So we get one description here. The person is in torment and they are in anguish. The other comes from the mouth of Jesus himself again and it's a phrase that he repeats over and over and over and over again. Whatever hell is, this is the response of people in hell. There will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Crying, wailing, screaming, pain so intense that people are grinding their teeth together. That, that's hell. It is a place of unrelieved torment. And by the way, here's a side note to that. Okay? Again, I said, this is bad medicine. I, I'd rather not, be honest with you, have to even teach this stuff. I don't like it. It's not, I don't, did not look forward. Some, some, some Mondays I get up, and I, I can't wait till Sunday because I got something so good, and this week wasn't like that at all. I'm thinking, man, I just, just got to get through this one, right? But it's, it's Jesus, and it's his words. 
And here's a side note to that. Look at John 5. You don't have to turn there, but John 5, 28-29. Jesus says, don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Do you understand that is telling us that everybody will be resurrected? Everybody will get a new body. Not only believers, but unbelievers will get a new body as well. You see, when an unbeliever dies, I think the Bible teaches their soul descends immediately into that place of torment. That's what the rich man in Lazarus is teaching us. It says the rich man died, he went to hell. So it's immediate. But in the future, Jesus says they'll be raised and given a new body that will then go with them into the lake of fire. There's coming a time with, with their new body in that final judgment when Satan is cast and his demons are cast in the lake of fire. Every unbeliever with a new body will be cast into that lake of fire. You see, just as a believer needs a new body that's fit for heaven, an unbeliever will get a new body that's fit for hell. You see, the body you have today, if you took it into hell, it would be consumed immediately. But they'll actually have a body that even though it's in torment and anguish, it cannot be consumed because it's a new body. I mean, that's, that's terrible. That's horrible. They're basically being raised in new bodies for the single pr purpose of being punished in those bodies. Now, that's, that's just a side note. Number two, the second thing about hell, it is unending. It is eternal and it is everlasting. You may ask, are you sure it lasts forever? Well, I, all I can tell you is it lasts as long as heaven, according to Jesus. Look at Matthew 25, 46. These will go into way into everlasting punishment, the righteous into eternal life. Everlasting, eternal. As long as heaven lasts, as long as our life with Jesus lasts, that's how long hell lasts. Jesus himself made that comparison. And you see, to be honest with you, in the end, I think this is the worst part. You see, in this life, if any of you have ever gone through anything, if you've ever gone through pain, you've ever gone through something that really hurts, maybe, it's a, maybe it could be a bodily pain, maybe it's the loss of a loved one, and it just, it just hurts bad. The only reason we're really able to endure that pain and suffering is because we have a hope that it'll end, yes or no? Right? We, we, all, we know it's bad now, but we all have a hope this ain't going to last forever. There's coming a time, there's coming a day, there's coming a place where this will end. See, that's why people, you know, we, I, don't, I don't know about y'all, but it just seems like people kill themselves nowadays more and more and more. Doesn't it seem that to you? People are losing hope. That's why people commit suicide, because they've lost hope. They don't have any hope that it'll get better. The only thing they can think of is they've got to end this hurt. They've got to end this... They've got to end this pain. But people in hell will not have any hope that their suffering will end. And they'll not be able to kill themselves to end it. Can you imagine being in some sort of pain, physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain, and not having any hope that this will end ever? The worm never dies. The fire never goes out. The, the sweet relief of death never comes. It just goes on and on and on and on, and on, and on, and on. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Pro uh, Progress, anybody ever read Pilgrim's Progress? It was written in the 1600s. John Bunyan said this, In hell, 
You shall have nothing but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep you company. While you're in this world, the very thought of the devil appearing to you makes your flesh crawl and your hair stand up on your head. But what will you do when the real devils of hell will be with you screeching and howling and roaring in such a hideous manner that you'll be at your wit's end and ready to run stark mad for anguish and torment? If after 10,000 years an end should come, you would at least have comfort. You see what he's saying? If you, if you knew this will last 10,000 years at least, you'll know at the end of 10,000 years it's over. But John Bunyan says, here is your misery. You must remain here forever and ever. And when you see what an innumerable company of howling devils you must live amongst, you shall think this again, this is my portion forever. When you have been in hell so many thousand years as there are stars in the firmament or drops in the sea or sands on the seashore, yet you have to lie there forever. There's no end. And I really think that's the worst part. I mean, can you even imagine that? Can you imagine something so horrible? You see, when I read all this and I think about all this, I can't ask but ask this question. How can a loving God ever do that to somebody? How can a loving God ever send anyone to a place like that? But here's the thing. You see, God never, never intended hell for men and women. He never intended hell for human beings. Hell was created for Satan and his demons. That's what hell's for. But the fact is, guys, we chose Satan as our king. We chose Satan as our head. We chose him to follow, not God. So we belong with him. But here's the good news. John 3.16, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him doesn't have to perish in hell but can have everlasting life in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Romans 5, 8, and 9, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still following Satan, while we still chose him as our king, Christ died for me. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of hell through him. You see, the fact is, guys, we can avoid hell simply by doing one simple thing, and that is receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. But you have to appropriate the kingdom for yourself. You have to give him your life in exchange for his. You have to, it has to be like that treasure. You've seen it, you've heard it, you've found it. Now go appropriate it. Give everything you have to grab that kingdom. I want to close today with one scripture from the words of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, 10-11. Paul says this, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then Paul says these words, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing therefore the terror of what waits the unbeliever. Knowing the terror of what waits those who do not accept the king. 
Paul says, we persuade men. We persuade men. Next week we're going to talk about one more parable in Matthew 13, and that is the parable of the householder. It's the last parable that Jesus tells. In fact, after he finishes this parable, he looks at his disciples and he asks a question. He says, do you understand all these things I've taught you? Do you understand them? And they say, yes, Lord. And he says, okay, i got one more parable for you, and it's the parable of the householder. And it will actually, it basically kind of concludes all of Matthew 13, and it'll talk about some of these things, how we that have this knowledge, what we're supposed to, to do with it. And I can tell you, if we look at application today, if you're here today and you're not a believer, then I encourage you today, don't be like those mullet and that net brushes up against your back, and you just move away. Judgment is coming. Give your heart to Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, and you know the, you know the Savior, you know the King, let me tell you, you got friends that don't. you got co-workers that don't. you got neighbors that don't. And as we said, that, that dragnet of the kingdom is moving closer and closer and closer. Paul says, we persuade men. We should be in their kitchens, in their cubicles, in their offices, in their trucks, persuading men to turn to the Savior. Let's pray. Father.